And we're live. And welcome to Hello. another edition of... Hello. How you doing, Mike? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. But this is another edition of The Rock Show. This is episode 92. And who are we talking about today? Talking about the uh, the late rock critic Lester Bangs. Okay. Uh, Lester is a guy who wrote for Cream Magazine, Rolling Stone, uh, several other these plants. And uh, he's one of the most, I would say, probably the best rock critic we've ever had, okay? Uh, as far as style, uh, just the volume of work is amazing. The guy was influential. Um, it's, it's a little hard to understand today how important, you know, rock critics were back in the 70s, even the 80s. Um, these guys could make or break you. You know what I mean? Yeah, they could make you a break. And he um he was definitely a game changer. Yeah, definitely. I mean, his style of writing, he had no problem uh criticizing somebody. And and he had a a theme through all his writings and, and articles that were like, you gotta be real, you know, it's gotta be a real feeling, real band, you know. Um he didn't do puff pieces. A puff piece was something that would just be like a journalist saying great things about a band. Yeah. He, never he wouldn't do that. Yeah. He, he had that, that whole theme early on in his career. So his whole career was like that. Um, what he hated was, was, uh, you know, stuck up pretentious rock stars. He'd slap them down, you know, in his articles <laughs> and everything. And, uh, you know, he was very influenced by, the beat writers, meaning like from the fifties, like William Burroughs and Ginsburg and Jack Kerouac, guys like that. And you, it comes across in his style, I think. Okay. Uh, there was a certain amount of like, you know, the way he wrote, I'll, I'll read a little bit of his stuff, but uh, you, you get a sense that you're reading more than just, you know, an article about a specific band or an album. You're reading like a short little story with insights into, into Lester, you know, everything was like very personal the way he wrote. So far, so good, Mike. I'm yeah. reading some stuff that he had here. And he, um, where are he originally from? Well, he was born December 14th, 1948 in Escondido, California. That's where he yeah. was. Now he, his parents was, uh, Norma Bell and Conway Bangs. Um, his real name was Leslie Conway Bangs, but they called him Lester. Uh, both of his parents were originally from Texas. Uh, his father was a truck driver and his mother was a housewife and a devout Jehovah witness. Wow. So, yeah. So he had kind of an interesting childhood with that. His mother really pushed the religion early on, but I think it became clear that that, you know, wasn't going to work with him. Um, his father was killed in a fire when he was about yeah, 11 years old. I saw old. that. That's yeah, crazy. Big tragic moment in his life, of course. Uh, but also at the same time, his parents were splitting up. Uh, they, they, they were breaking up. And I think the father died. I don't know if they ever officially got divorced and then he died or what the timeline was. But it was all around the same time when, when Lester was about 11. Wow. Yeah. So around the time of his father's death, um, and his parents breaking up, 
Yeah, his mother moved him out to El Cajon in the San Diego County section, California, Southern California. All right. He was, uh, uh, you know, average kid pretty much. Okay. You know, he had this tough childhood, but uh, he went to school. Okay. Uh, he was a little bit rebellious. He was inter- interested in, uh, in the early 60s, he discovered the beat writers, like I mentioned, uh, Burroughs, Kerouac, Ginsburg, those guys. Um, he loved jazz. He was really into John Coltrane and really yep. into Miles Davis. Um, he also loved comic books and sci-fi movies. So, you know, in a lot of ways, he was he was an average kid from that time. But he was also like, you know, a little bit extra because he was interested in, in, in you know, headier stuff like jazz. You know, as a kid, he, you know, not too many kids are interested in jazz. But he, he was very musically inclined. Um like I said, his mother tried to raise him as a Jehovah Witness, but didn't really work. He left or resisted that. By his late he, teens, yeah, go ahead. he shitted. He shitted on the MC fives. <laughs> but he would do. He would do a complete one eighty on that. Oh yeah! Wow! Oh, yeah! He was a big fan of the MC five, but just not at first. Not at first. He shitted on them. The, yeah, it's one of the few cases where he's actually changed his mind. Um, in his late teens, he, he dabbled a lot in acid, took a lot of acid. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he was into all the kinds of hallucinogens, you know, uh, Lester, Lester was a rebel. He did what he wanted and, you know, drugs were part of his life, his whole life, basically drugs and drinking a little bit was, was a big part of his life. Um, he loved rock and roll by the, by, by his late teens. He was really into a lot of, uh, you know, Beatles, Stones, Yardbirds, 60s garage bands. He really uh, was into the whole mythology of rock and roll. And it's something yeah. that he realized he wanted to write about, okay? Because he was so influenced by the beats that he wanted to put that kind of, you know, themes and style into In rock a magazine. Yeah, it's something that never really had been done. Um, whether he did it consciously, I'm, I'm I'm not really sure. Okay, it just was like he was who he was, and he was influenced by who he was influenced by, and he just took that and and transformed that whole that whole industry. Even even his at the time of, when he was in his prime in in maybe the mid seventies, mid to late seventies, um, he you know, was different than anybody else that was writing, you know, totally, totally different. A Lester Bangs article was something that, you know, if you didn't care about rock journalism, you might even read it because you heard that it was Lester Banks. Yeah. You know, but he was, uh, he they, was, he was young. I didn't realize how young he was when he was writing these well, articles. When he started, yeah. When he started in, in, in 66, he was enrolled in a junior college called Grossmont. Uh, he didn't really, you know, have much interest in college, but what he liked to do was, was writing. Okay. So he was there mostly about that. Um, he started to submit these articles and reviews for a, a magazine called the San Diego door, which was kind of a, uh, underground alternative magazine. Okay. It talked about rock and roll and, and bands, but it also talked about the counterculture. So uh, that was a pretty popular local magazine in San Diego. 
Do you remember the movie Almost Famous? Yeah. Robin. I remember the movie. Okay. Yeah, Almost uh, Famous. Lester, yeah. Yeah, Lester, Lester Bangs is played by Philip Seymour Hoffman in that. And uh, oh yeah, where they Cameron, yeah. Yeah, Cameron Cameron Crowe, who the story is about. You know, he wrote to Lester. Okay, and and he also wrote to the San Diego Door also. So the San Diego Door was something that magazines like Rolling Stone and uh, and Cream, especially Cream, they would look at what was going on in these underground magazines and try to like get these people to write for them too. Okay, so um, his first piece that he sent to Rolling Stone was actually published. Um, it was a, a write-up about the MC5's live debut album called Kick Out the Jams. Yeah. Um, and he totally shit on it. <laughs> he totally shit on it. Uh, he basically, you know, goes off. I want to read a little bit of it, actually, if you don't mind. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, not long. it's not long. There's two books that I have that are excellent with his writings. Um, this first one here is called Psychotic Reactions and Carburetor Dung. Okay, it's all his writings in there. And then this is called, this is called Main Lines, Blood Feasts, and Bad Taste, a Lester Bangs Reader. Okay? And basically, the, the, the this one came first, and then pretty much whatever they did didn't publish after that came out in his second book. Okay. All right, but um, I'll read this to you. It's only like a page. All right? So it's called The MC5 Kick Out the Jams. Whoever thought when that dirty little quickie wild in the streets came out that it would leave such an imprint on the culture. First, the doors who were always headed in that direction. Anyway, grinding out the famous, they got the guns, but we got the numbers march for the troops out there in teen land. And now this sweaty aggregation, clearly this notion of violent total youth revolution and takeover is an idea whose time has come, which speaks not well for the idea, but ill for the time. About a month ago, the MC5 received a cover article in Rolling Stone proclaiming them the new sensation, a group to break all barriers, kick out all the jams, total energy thing, etc., etc., etc. Never mind that they came on like a bunch of 16-year-old punks on a meth power trip. These boys, <laughs> so the line ran, could play their, could play their guitars like, like John Coltrane and Pharaoh Sanders played sax. Well, the album is out now. And we can all judge for ourselves. For my money, they came on more like Blue Cheer than Coltrane or Sanders. But then my money had always gone for a copy of this ridiculous, overbearing, pretentious album. And maybe that's the idea, isn't it? The set, recorded live, starts out with an introduction by John Sinclair, the Minister of Information for the White Panthers, if you can dig that. The speech itself stands midway between Wild in the Streets and Arthur Brown. The song that follows it is anticlimactic. Musically, the group is intentionally crude and aggressively raw, which can make for powerful music, except when it is used to conceal a paucity of ideas as it is here. Most of the songs are barely distinguishable from each other in their primitive two-chord structure. You've heard wow. all this before. Such notables as The Seeds, Blue Cheer, Question Mark and the Mysterians, and The Kingsman. The difference here... The difference, which will sell several hundred thousand copies of this album, is in the hype. The thick overlay of teenage revolution and total energy thing 
which conceals these scrapyard vistas of cliches and ugly noise. Kick out the jams sounds like Barrett Strong's money as recorded by the Kingsman. The lead on Come Together is stolen note for note from the Who's I Can See for Miles. I Want You Right Now sounds exactly down to the lyrics like a song called I Want You by the Trogs, a British group who came on with a similar sex and raw sound image a couple of years ago. Remember Wild Thing? and promptly disappeared into oblivion, where I imagine they are laughing at the MC5. <laughs> and that's it. Wow. <laughs> he just totally shit his, on them. That was his very first... Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, but you can see in the writing. I mean, he's, I mean the, the words, the, the, way, the, the way it flows, you know, he was talented, you know, to come up yeah. with, with that kind of language for, for rock criticism, you know? Um, yeah, it's great stuff. It was a caustic review. Yeah, yeah. He would he would favor raw and emotionally honest music over any kind of slick, safe music. That was his thing. Okay, um, he freelanced with Rolling Stone off and on until 1973. Uh, yeah. Between 69 and 73, he praised the Velvet Underground. That was his his favorite band, uh, Lou Reed in particular. He loved yeah. Captain Beefheart. And he also loved Van Morgan. He also loved anything by Iggy and Hooges. Yeah. So well, he was kind of like, you know, ahead of the curve. He was ahead of the curve in a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that he was listening to. Um, so he, so he's definitely, the, um, first, the what? Did you hear about the oh. first review of the, of the, Sabbath album that he ever did. Oh, he also, album. yeah, he also fucking went at it with that too. Are you gonna read yeah, that too? Yeah, that yeah. review. Oh, uh, no, not that one. That was really long, but but you know, if you get these books, you can check them out. A lot of these things are online too. Like it's all been put out there. Oh yeah, <laughs> but yeah, actually, in the nineteen seventy when the Black album came out, he he compared it to uh, compared it to Cream. Okay, <laughs> Clapton Cream. Yeah. And for Lester, that was also an insult. Okay. That was also an insult. You know what? Let me go to let me go to headphones here. I think we can yeah. do that, all right? Yeah, go on, because uh, you broke down there a little bit. Okay. How are we doing? Oh yeah, that's good too now. Yeah. That's uh, better, right? Okay. Yeah. Now, like I said, uh, you know, for him to um, compare anything to Cream was like an insult. Yeah, basically. So anytime you know, he, he, he didn't he didn't like Cream. He thought he thought they were he thought Cream was like over overblown, overdone. I kind of agree with him. I kind of agree with him. People point to Cream as like this great band. To me, it's it's okay because it was like a super group with Ginger Baker yeah, it in it and everything. Group. Yeah, but I—I I, I mean, they had a lot of influence, I guess. A lot of people point to them, but to be honest with you, I never really saw it. That's me. But that was a super group. I mean, those guys got together. It was—it was like three, uh, you know, it was three fucking uh, lead singers. Yeah, but they were only around for like a year or two. You know, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't like even, a long, a long time. Yeah, but you people know. still like, oh, cream, cream. <laughs> yeah, even today, you know. And when they when yeah. they did that reunion tour back in, 
oh, I think it was 20 years ago already they did that reunion tour. Wow, was it that they long? Sell, they they, they, it, it, might, yeah, it might have been. I mean, Jack Bruce has been dead for a while. Uh, wow. Ginger Baker died like last year. So Clapton's the only one left. But I think that was almost 20 years ago with that, that reunion tour. And it's, they were getting like $1,000 a ticket. It was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. They sold out the garden. They had to do. They had to add extra days in the garden. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. It was crazy. So, yeah, um, he he would freelance with different. He worked for Cream, but he also I'll get into that in a second. But he also would freelance with other magazines. So between yeah. sixty nine and seventy three, he was he was dealing with Rolling Stone quite a bit, freelancing articles with them. Uh, but in 73, they would get rid of him. They'd ask him, just leave us alone, basically, because he, they said he disrespected musicians too much. Yeah, he, he shitted on them. Like when he wrote an article, yeah. He, he... Yeah. Now, what he was doing around 1970 uh, attracted the attention of Cream magazine, all right? And he ended up moving out to Detroit and would eventually become their editor. Cream magazine. Uh, remember, we had Robert Duncan on a few weeks ago. Yeah, and Duncan was you know, good. he talked. To, yeah, he was great, and we talked about how Cream got started. You know, it was an alternative rock magazine, dealt with a lot of Detroit bands, but also bands that nobody would really talk about in the main in the mainstream. You know, Rolling yeah. Stone. Rolling Stone. If you look at Rolling Stone then, you know, compared to now, it was it was edgy. Okay, back oh, yeah, then. Of course. But 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 Cream was even edgier. You know what I'm saying? They yeah. they took things to a different level. And uh in 71, he wrote this feature article about Alice Cooper. And right after that, he it was it was a it was a hugely popular article. And uh he would be named the magazine's editor in 71. He would live in Detroit for the next five years, claiming that it's rock and roll's only hope. Detroit. Yeah. So he pretty much was like, yeah, because he loved Detroit. He fell in love with Detroit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Detroit in those days, uh, the music scene there was was probably the most happening in in uh in the country, other than maybe San Francisco, okay, which had really been big in the late sixties. Uh, but Detroit, but it was a different kind of music coming out of Detroit. It was the heaviest, hardest rock and roll that you were going to hear was coming out of Detroit. So bands like the Stooges and the MC5 and, and uh, Alice and stuff like that, that were all, you know, totally different than anything else being. being they were kind of like the anti-hippies. In the yeah, Detroit. they were very anti-hippies. Yeah, yeah. Now, one thing that Lester hated was like a pompous, stuck-up rock star, okay? So there's this one article titled of pop and pies and fun part one <laughs> okay and he wrote i'll just quote quote one thing he says what we need are more rock stars willing to make fools of themselves absolutely jump off the deep end and make the audience embarrassed for them if necessary so long as they have not one shred of dignity or mythic corona left because then the whole damn pompous edifice of this supremely ridiculous rock and roll industry set up to grab bucks by conning youth and encouraging fantasies of a pissant youth culture could collapse. And with it would collapse the careers of the hyped 
talentless non-entities who breed off it. Wow. So, I mean, that was that's like <laughs> yeah. some tough words. Some tough yeah. words right there for the industry. But, I mean, you know, he was right. Uh, what he was you, looking at He would was, take that article today, he would have been done. He would have been fired. Probably. Yeah, probably somebody <laughs> would have a hissy fit. Yeah. Yeah. But, but what he was talking about was the early 70s rock scene. You had the Detroit underground kind of stuff but yeah. what was in what was in the mainstream uh zeppelin okay now i'm not gonna bash zeppelin but at the same time they were kind of symbolic of this like excess okay you know 20 minute guitar solos 20 minute drum solos things like that and 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 lester was kind of like you know he was banging the drum for late 60s you know mid to late 60s garage rock to kind of come back yeah all right and that's that's what he viewed as you know the real rock and roll i mean in that article i read he compares the mc5 to the kingsman the kingsman did louis louis yeah right? Louis Louis. They, you know they, that's you know and that's that's the kind of stuff that lester loved um but you know uh he would hang with you know he he, he reviewed zeppelin and all that too OK, he would do reviews about them and not totally bash them, you know, so he he knew when to say stuff and when not to, I guess. Now, you know, sometimes you know what it was, but that the Queen magazine that he worked for, like they were doing people like Blondie, they were doing people that would never get exposure and all that much review from like a magazine like the Rolling Stone. Because Rolling exactly. Stone pretty much yeah. Rolling Stone was doing pretty much popular music. That's pretty much where they were. They, 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 were, were, they were top. They were top forty at that point. Yeah, uh, yeah. And 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 occasionally, specifically with the Lester Bangs article, yeah. that's when they would. That's when they try to be a little edgier. But most of the time, Rolling Stone was pretty pretty straight. You know, mainstream. It's safe. You know, safe. It's safe music, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, um, sometimes Lester would even go after his heroes, people that mm -hmm. he liked. Okay, Ooh. and that that happened with Lou Reed. He was in a feud with Lou Reed between 1973 and 1975. All right. Wow. He 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 called Lou a sellout. Okay, he didn't like his solo stuff too much of it. Oh. Uh, he liked Lou with the Velvet Underground. Yeah, okay. he, he was like always big solo. on that. Yeah, he didn't like him solo. He, do you remember the scene? I don't know if you remember this. In Almost Famous, when Cameron Crowe is talking to Lester, they're walking down the street, and and they real well, Lester's realizing that the kid, you know, he's like a fifteen-year-old kid, Cameron Crowe, and Lester's like in his twenties. All right, he realizes the kid is cool. You know, he knows what he knows about music, and you know, he's influenced. You can tell he's influenced by him too. And yeah. he said he says. Uh, you know, what do you think of Lou Reed? And Cameron Crowe uh, says, well, I like the early stuff, but now he just wants to be David Bowie. He should be himself. Uh -huh. yeah. Okay. And, yeah. and you know, I, I'm a big Lou Reed fan, but I know where he's coming from with that. Okay. And, uh, you know, Transformer by Lou Reed was produced by Bowie. There definitely was like, you know, a Bowie shadow over Lou Reed and his solo stuff in that time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but in 1976, uh, Lester praised Lou Reed's metal machine music, okay? Now, if you remember from our 
our, our podcast last year on Lou Reed, Metal Machine Music was that album that was nothing but feedback. It was all just guitar yeah, yeah. feedback. Yeah, okay. it was great. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, it's just feedback. There's noise. no songs. No, you know, no, it's just, noise from it's just noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got the article here. Okay, I'm going to read from it here. It's only like, uh, it's a couple of pages, but it's about four pages. But I think it's really interesting. All right. Yeah, this is good. So it says, it's called The Greatest Album Ever Made. Now, think about that. Lou Reed comes out with an album of just feedback. Okay, and he did it to piss off his record company. It's not even an album of songs, and, <laughs> and, and, and he's called and he's calling it the greatest album ever made. So, it has been suggested that in my annual regress report to the stockholders published here last month, that I neglected in all five thousand words to ever once mention why metal machine music is a good album. So here, especially in the light of Coney Island Baby, are the reasons. Number one. If you ever thought feedback was the best thing that ever happened to the guitar, well, Lou just got rid of the guitars. <laughs> Number two, I realize that any idiot with the equipment could have made this album, including me, you, or Lou. That's one of the main reasons I like it so much. As with the gods and Tangerine Dream, not only does it bring you closer to the artist, but someday, God willing, I may get to do my own metal machine music. It's all folk music anyway. Number three, when you wake up in the morning with the worst hangover of your life, metal machine music is the best medicine. Because when you first arise, you're probably so fucked that it's still drunk that it doesn't even really hurt yet. Not like it's going to. So you should put this album on immediately, not only to clear all the crap out of your head, but to prepare you for what's in store for the rest of the day. Number four, speaking of clearing out crap, I once had this friend who would say, I take acid at least every two months just to blow all the bad shit out of my brain. So I say the same thing about metal machine music, except that I take it about once a day, like vitamins. <laughs> Number five. <laughs> In his excellent liner notes, Lou asserts that he and the other speed freaks did not start World War One or Two or the Bay of Pigs, for that matter. And he's right. If everybody took amphetamines all the time, everybody would understand each other. Either that or never listen. <laughs> yeah, either that or never listen or bother with the other son of a bitch because they'd all be too busy spending three days drawing psychedelic lines around a piece of steno paper until it's totally black, writing 80 page letters about meaningless occurrences to their mothers or creating metal machine music. There would be no more wars and peace and harmony would reign. Just imagine Gerald Ford on speed. He might manifest some glimmer of personality. Or Ronald Reagan, a blood vessel in his snapping turtle lips, would immediately burst, perhaps ridding us of that cocksucker. As oh is God. well known by now, yeah, as is well known by now, JFK enjoyed regular injections of meth and vitamins from happy croakers. Enough said. He may not have actually accomplished anything except the Bay of Pigs. Wait a minute. Lou hasn't been doing his homework, but he had style and a winning smile. Number six. I have heard this record characterized as anti-human and anti-emotional. That it is, in a sense, since it is music made more by tape recorders, amps, speakers, microphones, and ring modulators than any set of human hands and emotions. But so what? Almost all music today is anti-emotional and made by machines, too. From Elton John to disco to Sally Can't Dance, 
which Lou doesn't realize is one of his best albums precisely because it's so cold. It's computerized formula production line shit into which the human heart enters very rarely, if at all. At least Lou is upfront about it, which makes him more human than the rest of those M.O.R. dick noses. Besides which, any record that sends listeners fleeing the room, screaming for (laughs) surcies of oral flagellation, or alternately getting physical and disturbing your medications to the point of breaking the damn thing, can hardly be accused, at least in results, if not original creative man hours, of lacking emotional content. Why do people go to see movies like Jaws, The Exorcist, or Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS? So they could get beaten over the head with baseball bats, have their nerves wrenched while electrodes are being stapled to their spines, and be generally brutalized at least once every 15 minutes or so. The time between the face falling out of the bottom of the sunk boat and the guy's bit off leg hitting the bottom of the ocean. This is what today is commonly understood as entertainment, as fun, as art even. So they've got a lot of nerve landing on Lou for metal machine music. At least here, there's no 15 minutes of bullshit padding between brutalizations. Anybody who got off on The Exorcist should like this record. It's certainly far more moral a product. It goes on. It goes on. Is yeah. It, you know, it's like two, four, but I mean, you know, it, it's hilarious because he's calling this album like fantastic and everybody hated it when it came out. And he I just went he the other it. way. I think he did it just to fuck with people. I really think he did that whole Everything article, he right? wrote, everything he wrote was to fuck with people, Rob. And that's and what's just, great about him. You know, that's pretty <laughs> funny. It is funny, you know. Uh, he had another article called Let Us Now Praise Famous Death Dwarves or How I Slugged It Out with Lou Reed and Stayed Awake. Okay? <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, a, it's a long interview, okay, with, with Lou Reed. Uh, I think it's about 1975. And they're in a Hilton hotel room. And basically, probably a third of the article is, is about them talking about which drugs they took. Okay, and and how you know he accuses Lou of being a speed freak, and and Lou says I'm not a speed freak. You know, speed speed kills, man. I don't do that, right? But then you know, Lester goes into this whole thing about how he is a speed freak. Okay, he's lying, and he's like all speed freaks lie, and then they're talking about different drugs, and there's one that he mentions, and Lou goes, "You didn't do that. You'd be dead if you did that drug, right?" You know, oh my God. It's, it's nuts. They're just talking about different shit that they did. And then, uh, you know, you can tell like they're actually arguing and everything. It's, it's funny. It's funny. I mean, how many times do you see an interview and the people start arguing with each other and then it gets oh, yeah. published? <laughs> you, you know, know you know, what, never you know what's the, and then look how he died. Look what he died of. Yeah. Well, he pretty much yeah. died of I mean, Like I said, dro- drugs, drugs, right. I mean, drugs were always a part of his life, you know. And uh, sometimes more than others, you know, but one thing Lester always warned about to people and it's 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 shown in the almost famous movie is uh, how rock critics kind of just create this industry of cool. okay, and, and you know, industry of cool was an expression that he made up. Um, Basically, what he meant by that was. A lot of bands would go into an interview with a journalist with the idea that 
the journalist is going to just make them look cool. All right. And that's shown in the almost famous movie, too. All right. Because that band Stillwater asked Cameron Crowe, just make us look cool. Just yeah. make us look good. Okay. And and Lester was like, you can't, you know, he, he, he when he, in the movie, and this happened in real life, uh, when he was advising Cameron Crowe, he says, don't make friends with them. Don't become friends with them. Then you're just a fan and you can't, you can't write critically. The article, yeah. Them. Yeah, you know. And in that whole movie, and it's a, it's a great flick. I mean, he gets kind of sucked into the tour with Stillwater and he's hanging out with the groupies and he's having fun. And, you know, uh, he doesn't really do any, any drugs, but he, you know, he ends up losing his virginity by a bunch of groupies. <laughs> you know, he's like a 15-year-old kid, Cameron. Yeah, he had a great time. Yeah, yeah, but you know, yeah. I mean, it was it, Lester was always like, you know, you got to be real. You can't, you can't make a puff piece and just flatter these these guys. That's what they're gonna want you to do. They're gonna, they're gonna give you drugs. They're gonna give you groupies. They're gonna hang out with you, and you want to hang out with them because, you know, it's cool to hang out with rock stars. Yeah, all right. And and one thing about Lester, you know, had had. You know, Lester, his whole life, he, he thought he was uncool, okay? You know, he didn't think he was, like, that cool. I mean, he was. But, but you know, he was, like, a quiet, you know, in his, in his time at home, he would sit at home alone sometimes and, you know, just write. And, you know, he wasn't always out there with the rock stars. A lot of people thought that. That wasn't really true. But he had this quiet side to him. Um, in the early 70s, Lester started using this term called punk rock. All right. Now, what he'd used it for was to describe the 60s garage bands that he loved so much. Bands like the Trogs and the Yardbirds and stuff like that. Kingsman. Uh, but he also used it in reference to the Stooges and the MC5. Uh, he had totally done a 180 on the MC5 after that first review. Uh when back in the USA came out, their second album, he loved it. High time. He loved it. Uh, Cream magazine started kind of using that word too, punk. Okay. Uh, and they used it when 76 came along and you started seeing bands. They called them punk bands. Now, you know, uh, also there was punk magazine, which was started by legs mm -hmm. McNeil and, and John Holstrom. And they take credit too for, for using that term. So I'm not quite sure who, invented it i always kind of figured it was more legs mcneil but lester was actually using that word in the early 70s so um and again in those days punk was very was a lot more insulting than it is now uh, yeah. you know like you know if you called somebody a punk they could take it like you know uh, like a prisoner taking it up the ass is called a punk yeah. okay jail all right used to be called that so you know it could have been taken that way, but so it had, a, I had a little bit more of a negative connotation than it even does now. Um, when he was with cream during punk rock time, 76, uh, he would be with, um, another writer named Nick Toshis and Richard Meltzer. All right. And the three of them together working for cream, they were called the noise boys because of the music that they loved. But like, basically, and, and if you remember the Robert Duncan interview, you know, the office at Cream was insane. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was just a party. A... It was a party. Yeah, it was a party yeah. every day. 
okay, everybody getting fucked up and, and all that. And this is how they were writing their articles, they, you know, their, their reviews in this environment. Um, he would have a big falling out with Barry Kramer, who was the publisher of Cream, and it was over some back pay or money that was owed to him. So he would leave Cream in 1976, and uh, shortly after he would move to New York City, uh, he freelanced for the uh, Village Voice. He wrote some articles for them. He wrote some articles for Penthouse, Playboy, and also over in England as uh, New Musical Express. Um, a lot of people don't know, but Lester also played music. Okay. Uh, he could play a little guitar. He could sing, you know, things like that. Uh, when he was with Cream at the very end, he collaborated with Peter Laughter, okay, who was with Pear Ubu, Cleveland band. Uh, yeah. They recorded like this acoustic parody one time of Sister Ray and Pale Blue Eyes by the Velvet Underground. In 77, when he was living, uh, I believe he was living in New York at that point, uh, he recorded a seven-inch single called Let It Blurt. And it was actually produced by Velvet Underground's John Cale. That single would come out in 1979, kind of sit around for a little while before it came out. Um, in 77, though, at CBGB's, uh, when Lester was, uh, he was there, you know, hanging out there all the time once he got into New York. Um, I remember Robert said they were living together? Yeah. Right? In, in like the, they were same, neighbors, same building. Yeah. Yeah, in the same building. Yeah, yeah. Um, he met up with Joey Ramone's brother. Joey Ramone's brother is named Mickey Lee. And at the time, he had a band called The Rattlers. And they became friends right away. Both of them were jazz heads. Uh, Mickey was a big jazz head. Um, and they wanted to put this band together um, to kind of like be a garage band of, 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 of that kind. Now, the Rattlers were doing okay. But Mickey added, um, added Lester to the band. And he beca it became the, uh, a band called Burnland. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and they would, yeah, they would play, they, yeah, they would play around. So it was cool. You had this like rock journalist that was also like making music, you know? Yeah. And Birdland was, yeah. Yeah. Now they, in 79, they uh, had been playing for about a year and a half. And they actually snuck into Electric Lady Studios on 8th Street uh, in the middle of the night and recorded their own album on the sneak. Okay. Uh, it was a, a cassette ended up being the master copy. Okay. It wasn't like a reel to reel or anything like that. And, uh, that album would, you know, you'd hear about it, that it existed, but I, I remember like when it came out in 86, this was a few years after Lester passed away. Uh, Mickey Lee finally put it out and I got to hear it because it was something that you always heard existed, but you didn't know how, you know, it was just like a cassette. Nobody, nobody had a real copy of it. Yeah, because the guy, one of the guy, one of the guy had keys to the studio and they snuck in like on yeah. April Fool's and they just recorded right. it. Yeah, yeah, right. It was April Fool's Day and yeah, they just like snuck in there and recorded. Yeah. It. <laughs> <laughs> Only in the seventies could that happened, you know. That's awesome. So, yeah, yeah. Now, um, you know, like I was saying earlier, is is you know, Lester was a. You know, despite all his success, despite, uh, you know, his accolades and people respecting him, 
he had demons. Okay, and demons. you know, drugs were a part of were a part of his life, his whole life, and you know, he would take it too far. Um, April thirtieth, nineteen eighty-two, at the age of thirty-three, he accidentally OD'd from an opioid called dextropropoxyphene. Okay, that was an opioid. And he mixed that with something called diazepam, which is really called benzodiazepine, and NyQuil, the, the cough medicine. All right. Yeah. Cough medicine was, you know, pe- people forget, like, people used to go around drinking cough medicine back in the day because it used to have codeine in it. So you would, you would get, you know, even if it was over the counter, it had codeine in it. So you get wow. fucked up on cough syrup. It was a cheap way of getting fucked up. I guess right. so. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was. It was. I mean, people in, you know, you'd hear store, you know, a lot of like you, you heard the stories of, of like in the 50s with like the teenage gangs in Brooklyn and stuff like that. You know, they were all just like hopped up on cough syrup, rubitussin. Wow. <laughs> Back like in my father's day and stuff, you know, it's, that's what yeah, they used to do. Real, that's funny. That's very funny. Yeah. yeah. It, it is, but you could actually, you, you could die from it, you know, if you overdosed it. Now, wow. if you think about this, he took an opioid and a benzodiazepine. Now, anything benzo, that's almost like speed, okay? So what he did was like a, 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 like a um, what do you call it? A, uh, a speedball, okay? It was like a speedball, but with pills. Wow. All right. I mean, people like a speedball is what killed um, John Belushi. And that's when you inject heroin and speed at the same time. Okay. And, you know, so you, you, it, it, it wrecks your, your central nervous system because it's like an up and a down at the same time. Yeah. All right. So it's crazy. You know, I mean, it's, it's 10 times worse than doing cocaine and drinking, even though that's like a similar up and down thing. You know, but then on top of it, he had drank some NyQuil and it just knocked him out. Yeah, now, he was. Him up. What, yeah, when he was when he was found dead, uh, he was actually listening to the Human League album Dare. Remember the song "Don't You Want Me" by the Human League? Oh, what a way to that go was out! Like an, uh, yeah, he went out listening to that, man. Yeah, because supposedly the album the album was on the run out groove at the end, just going around and around and around. Oh and he shit! Found, he he was found on his couch. Yeah. Wow. So, Sad way to go out, but uh, his writings, you know, just like any artist, okay, is you know that that dies. Uh, his his writings are with us forever, okay. Like your music would be with you forever, and uh, I I actually you know I've read that that carbureted tongue book. This I've I've read this like ten times. It, it it's wow. it's a great book. Uh, it's like reading literature almost. It's not it's not like a rock critic you know what i'm saying he, he, it was like real real writing you know real creative writing um <laughs> not bad <laughs> yeah yeah i love it i love it so that's all i got for you today mr rossi not bad pretty good so we um discussed the history of um rock rock critic uh lester bangs and what a fascinating life man what stuff that he did and such a young kid to be such a great writer and gone so yeah. quick and fast you know yeah, and a lot of people have cited him as an influence. Um, one band that was very outspoken was REM. 
R.E.M. were yeah. very influenced by Lester Banks. In fact, you know the song, It's the End of the World, as we know yeah. it. Right? All the different yeah. things that they name, they say yeah. Lester Banks. Yeah, okay? wow. And then, it, yeah, and then in uh, the Ramones 1981 album, Pleasant Dreams, the song, uh, It's Not My Place in the Nine to Five World, there's a line that says, you know, hanging out with Lester Bangs, you all. Okay. Oh, so yeah. he was, he was, he was, he, he loved the Ramones. He, he was, he was name checked in a lot of songs. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was just, you know, a different time. Um, I don't know yeah. if, if bands, bands today even really pay attention to, I mean, it's not like there's magazines anymore. Rolling Stone is still yeah. around, but yeah, but it's, it's not like it's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a rag. And uh, yeah. You know, you got, you got like, I mean, I do read stuff like Pitchfork and Blabbermouth, like those, those websites, they might have good interviews or good articles about bands, but it nowhere near the level of writing of nah. Mr. Banks. I, I have, no. they, I've never seen anybody at that level. Nah, that's, that's like once in a, once in a lifetime. Once in you a know? lifetime kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that you won't and, get you that, know, yeah. It, yeah, and I've you know I've gone back and I've read his stuff many times, and it makes you want to listen to the album that he's reviewing. I mean, it's like, okay, what's he talking about? And then you throw it on, yeah. and you're like, wow, I'm, I'm, now I'm seeing it in a different way. You know, yeah, not too amazing. many people can do that. Not too nah. many people are able to do that, at least to me. You know, nah, man, not not bad. Oh, um, so um, with that, on uh, Mike, where can people reach you? Okay, I'm on Facebook under Michael Baker. And then you could also find us um, on the Rock Show podcast group page on Facebook. Uh, very active on there with, you know, putting the song of the day and lumped up song of the night and different things. I'll bring, I mean, I had stuff about Lester on there, I think, yesterday. And, uh, you know, we've been doing a lot with that. That group's been growing in leaps and bounds. We've got like about 400 members now. Uh, yeah. when we just started off with just a few not that long ago. Um you can find me on Instagram, RockerMike212, and then RockerMike3 on Twitter. What can we find bad. you, Mr. Rossi? You can find me on anything Lumped Up. Go on Google, look up Lumped Up, and you will see countless, countless stuff of uh, information, email, and uh, the show link, and T-shirts, and everything else you guys want to get. And um, yep. that, guys... Thank you for uh, the support. We reach in a hundred shows soon. This is number ninety-two, and um, yeah, what what we got next week? And, and we I want to thank next I, week. Yeah, and I, I, uh, next week, who do we got next week? Uh, you got me on that one. I got to look at my phone and my notes. Do you remember? Um, next week, I think is a big star. Oh yeah, right, right, right. I knew that was coming up. Uh, big star, Alex Chilton's band. Uh, yeah. They were like very influential. I mentioned REM before. They were like a big yeah. influence on REM. Uh, we'll get into that. That's a very interesting, interesting band. Kind of a band a lot of people haven't heard of, but over the last yeah. like decade or so, they've they've really come back as a, a cult band from the seventies. And we'll we'll talk about it. All right. So everybody. Mike, have a good one, and we'll talk to you, you next too. week. Don't get drunk. Get lumped up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> See you later, Take care, brother. People.